My name's Bernie Hobbs. I'm from the ABC Science Unit and I'm wrapped to be here for our final um, Planet Talk of 2014, Woe Adelaide. Uh, Monday in Planet Talks is a day where we're looking at action and our action this afternoon is focusing on young people, on what's described as Gen Z, which is people who are at their oldest now, 19. And what we're really looking at um, with, with our panel here is trying to use uh, people who have leadership in, uh, in society in particular with that younger crew. Uh, see how I said crew, because I'm so cool. And uh, <laughs> we're trying to um, see if there are ways of, of harnessing that and engaging younger leaders to help lead young people in our um, action on climate change. And joining me on stage, I'm absolutely wrapped to have on my far side there, Arne Brun, who you may well have seen <laughs> performing. Uh, and uh, she's a delightful singer-songwriter. Had the crowd going off on Saturday afternoon when I saw her. Um, it's actually Anna's birthday today. So, uh, yeah, that's right. Thank you. <laughs> and being as she is an ice princess from the Arctic, she almost passed out from heat a minute ago. So <laughs> there's a I've got an ice bag here behind me. Yeah. <laughs> so we've just got to just got to make sure we keep her calm and restrained during proceedings. Next to Anna is Tim Hollow, who's uh, also a well-renowned musician from Foreplay. Um, the uh, he, you're a what do you play? Viola. Viola. See, so cool. <laughs> um, uh, not only is Tim a musician, uh, he's got a ridiculous background in activism, in law, in environmental work. He was um, in Greenpeace for a long time. He, he was also the, one of the senior advisors to Christine Milne. So um, a very, uh, very broad background, a lot, of, uh, a lot of action and care on the environmental front. And right next to me, I'm sure you would recognise um, Simon Shake, who, uh, as you would know, was one of the starter upperers of Australian Youth Climate Coalition and um, the head of Get Up for quite a while and also ran for, um, for the Senate quite recently. But luckily for us, did not get in. Unluckily for the nation, oh, but luckily you. for us here today, um, did not get in, so was able to be here. So please join me in welcoming. I guess what we're really looking at this afternoon is engaging young people, and I have to say, when I read the uh, when I read the blurb in the in the program, um, Gen Z and distractions versus action, this whole thing about Gen Z being yes, being the most connected age group, but also being more concerned about celebrity culture and diets and things than the environment, and I wonder if that's really true of Gen Z because from where I sit in Gen X, it sounds a hell of a lot like Gen Y to me. Is it? Um, is, do you think, in your experience of Gen Z, and I know, Tim, you've got kids in that age group, does that describe Gen Z? Is that a fair description? Look, I have to say I don't think it does to start off with, but um, a lot of... One of the interesting things about Gen Z is that they are the first generation of complete digital natives. If I watch my own kids, um, they are on their screens the whole time. And I think, you know, the worst decision I've made as a parent yet is allowing my older daughter to buy an iPod with her pocket money. And, you know, it's quite, it's quite extraordinary to focus on, on screens as opposed to, for instance, even when I was a kid, so much more time spent outside uh, mucking around in the environment, which actually allows you to feel a lot more about the environment. And I think we might come back to that idea. But one of the things that I really wanted to address in this question of who is Generation Z is that I think it's totally unfair of us 
as generations X and Y up here and, and, and some boomers um, here to try to define them. Uh, who are we to define them when they're a very young generation and they haven't had a chance to define themselves yet and they're right at that age when they're starting to be able to work out what the stories are that will shape them and what the history is that will shape them. So I think that's a, an interesting place to start. And I also wonder why are we hung up on engaging Gen Z when they're, you know, not going to be the most powerful players in action on climate change considering the timeline that we're faced with. We've got to act if, you know, if what um, the Climate Council tells us is right, this is the critical decade, the next five to six years. Are we, why are we chasing Gen Z? Well, well I think this is, uh, it comes down to our, our want to push this on to another generation. But the problem is that we, all of us in this room today and all of us watching this, are actually the last line of defence for Mother Nature. That's the simple reality. Mm -hmm. And so this question of will they engage, won't they engage, I think is actually fundamentally a, an irrelevant one because we don't have a choice. We can't wait for this generation to come up and grow their power. And frankly, they're not waiting either. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are people who are out there right now organising. We spoke earlier briefly about the Australian Youth Climate Coalition. I mean, that's an organisation who are mobilising this audience right now. Mm -hmm. In schools, this is happening. So we really can't wait for this generation. But at the same time, there's a lot of hope and optimism within that generation. Yeah, and I think that's something that we definitely want to tap into. now. Anna, you um, may not be so well known to our audience, but um, you've, uh, you've got a, a decent following in Scandinavia as well as in Australia and, and the States. You're on a tour at the moment. But something that you did back in uh, 2009, you, um, you organised a seven-hour non-stop sing-a-thon, um, which is probably not the best way to describe it, uh, and you're, you were really um, trying to do something on alerting people to climate change. No more lullabies. Tell us about what brought you to wanting to create lullabies and, and how, no more lullabies, sorry, and, and how, it was, how it went and how it was received. Uh, it started out with my own awakening, kind of climate change awakening. I, I was one of those who just didn't want to know anything about it. And then I, I went to a, a forum for a few days that summer and talk to the best uh, in that um, branch. <laughs> My head yeah. doesn't work really well today. I'm going to try to talk really slow so I get the words. But at least I got an awakening and I went into some kind of a shock because it was so much bigger than I thought and uh, so much more critical. And the next few weeks I just went walked around hating the world, just feeling really like, oh my God, what are we doing? But then when I came out of that, I felt a need to do something. And as an artist, I was thinking, what can I do? I have a stage, I have an audience, I can use my voice to talk about it. And I th that's what I felt from my experience that the communication of the problem is not there. We, uh, we get uh, the news, of course, and researchers and everything, but we don't talk about it. You don't talk about climate change at dinner. People get quite pissed off if you do. <laughs> Not pissed off, but they get quiet, you know. They don't want to talk about it. It's it's something we don't talk about. It's almost like we have a, a cancer diagnosis, mm. and we all know that we have to go to the doctor, but we really don't want to, because we haven't got noticed any symptoms yet, you know. So, and we don't want to talk about it. It's just really dark. So, our idea with Normal Alibis was to use art and music 
to make people open up to the message because when you listen to music or you get a good film or something uh, creative, it usually opens a different part of us humans so that the message can kind of slide in back the back door. And what we did was we, we were 25 artists playing three songs each or two songs each during seven hours. And in between those, we had little speaks, uh, speakers talking or a small film or some kind of message in between. And, and people actually sat there for seven hours, of course, with small breaks, but they went out. And it was just um, very powerful. And then we did a couple of more of uh, the same concerts in the summer, same theme, same thing. Uh, we're like 5,000 people. It was really, really good. And uh, it's hard to say what kind of impact it had, but I think that at least the people who came got something to think about. And I guess it's sometimes hard to know what to do. And I guess for me, communication is really important uh, when it comes to these big issues. So, so you're Norwegian, but you did this in, uh, in, you've been living in Stockholm. So you were doing that in Sweden. And did it? Did you have you thought about taking it further? Is it something you're going to do more with now, or are you sort of looking for something new? Well, the thing is that I don't. I think that many people who are engaged in climate change issues can recognize that it's quite draining, mm. energetic. It's energy draining because it's so such a difficult world because <laughs> yeah. people are you know as i used to do just shutting it down i don't want to talk about it so it's very difficult and it takes a lot of energy so i had to take a break mm. actually before because it, it was draining me for my health mm. <laughs> so um so i had a break from it but i also started this new thing in sweden called amas art makes a change uh, art makes a stand where we are like lots of artists who use our social media to to uh, reach out with important issues. So the first thing we did was invite Pussy Riot to Sweden. So it was kind of like a uh, political statement from Swedish artists. Um, so that's another thing going on now. So I'm not really taking a break, but... No, you you're know. hopeless at taking a break. It sounds like familiar territory yeah. to you two as well. <laughs> Thanks so much for that, Anna, and congratulations on, um, on No More Lullabies, and we'll hear more from you in a, in a bit. But, Tim, this sounds a lot like what you're trying to get going with Green Music Australia. It is similar, I guess. So Green Music Australia which is a project I'm starting up at the moment, uh, comes from two places. One is, as a musician, um, feeling the responsibility of the fact that we are here in this industry which is filled with very forward-thinking people. Um, and there's been some interesting conversations around how creative artists and audiences interested in that creative art actually, by their very nature, are more interested in what's going on around them than, than others, and I'd, so I think, you know, in that sense, Generation Z um, fans of music might be more connected than perhaps some others. But so it comes from this idea that the music industry, filled with all these people, still has an outsized environmental footprint. The footprint of music festivals, from the waste streams, from the food, from the plastic water bottles, the energy use, um, the transport. Uh, the same goes for venues, uh, the merchandising that goes with it. Um, we can actually do a lot to green up our own act as an industry. But it also at the same time comes from my perspective as an environmental activist for two decades. 
with this immense frustration that we are not winning, we are losing badly and we don't have enough time and what can we do? So the role of musicians and artists in general can be hugely powerful, as Anna was saying, in terms of opening up parts of people's minds that might not be um, ready to receive messages in some other way. The idea behind Green Music Australia is that the path into that is through the practical side. That as musicians and as an industry, if we can stand up and, say, and be counted and say, we actually are greening up our own act, we're doing what we can here, um, and now let's involve you, our audience, in what we're doing, and you start to have that conversation. Billy Bragg, who's playing tonight, has said a wonderfully wise thing um, a number of times in various different ways about his activism. He's made the point that as a musician speaking to your audience, you're not actually speaking to them as an expert. You're speaking to them as an equal. And the idea of an activist musician is to start that conversation with the audience and say, I don't know exactly what I'm doing here either, but I'm trying. And I'm ready to embrace this change. And I want to bring you with me on that adventure. So that, I guess, in a nutshell, is the goal of Green Music Australia. That last point, uh, I think, is actually really interesting because there's a lot of research that shows that the way uh, in which we have to communicate climate change relies fundamentally on these trust networks that people have in society, that I'm going to trust a politician less than I trust my neighbour. Mm. I'm going to trust a scientist perhaps less than I trust a musician uh, who, who I understand and who is with me. And so there are ways in which we could use these trust networks to actually reach out to audiences in a non-confronting way. And I think that's the power of music. But I think the challenge now, of course, is how do we expand this? How do we scale mm. this? I was talking yesterday to Natalie uh, and some of the others from Blue King Brown and they carry so much of the burden when it comes to these progressive social issues. There are, I'm sure Tim would attest, only really a handful of people in Australia who are doing their fair share from within the music industry. And so the next challenge becomes, how do we bring more people into this? And I think that's fundamentally about giving musicians transformative experiences, you know, getting them on a ship to Antarctica or up to West Papua or places where they can actually see, feel, touch, have a, give a, get a sense uh, of uh, what's going on in order to facilitate their engagement as cultural leaders in this space. Mm. Is that something that you've learned from your experience with the Climate Coalition? Well, certainly both at GetUp and the AYCC, we've done a lot to engage with cultural leaders and sometimes it's actually backfired. You'll remember uh, the Sunday Telegraph headline, Carbon Kate, uh, our attempt to work with Kate Blanchett yeah. in order to get the message out about the I'm sure the she's forgotten it by now, <laughs> yeah. I hope so. Uh, we certainly felt bad that, mm. you know, so much of that turned against the movement who were trying to use a cultural leader, uh, an actor, to go out there and spread this message in a non-confronting way. It was taken straight up by News Limited uh, as being very confronting. Mm. And that, you know, people won't be pushing back against us unless we're doing something powerful. So I take that whole campaign and the pushback that News Limited gave as a badge of honour more than anything else. Mm. Um. I was going to say in terms of that, that moment of engagement as well, uh, I mentioned earlier this idea of how Generation Z is the most kind of internet connected generation yet is the most disconnected from nature and that um, it's very difficult to, for instance, mourn the loss of species or be you know, get angry about the the challenges and the and the and the devastation which is going to come if we don't deal with climate change very rapidly. 
if you don't actually feel that connection to nature at all, and so I think Simon raises a really good point about taking musicians and other cultural leaders to um, to these places which are being very obviously affected, but it's also about the solutions and, and dealing with climate change has always been that really difficult balance and there have been arguments about this for donkey's years of are you campaigning about the problem or are you about the solution when you obviously need to do both, um, which is very difficult to do. So, yeah, part of the aim of Green Music Australia as well is to engage them directly with the solutions. Mm. It's tricky because there's no one, you know, guiding, there's no strategic direction for all of this. There's a whole lot of groups and individuals doing what they can and it's one big mess, but I guess that's the way humanity's actually gotten ourselves into this situation. So, <laughs> Yeah, but I do think that there is something we're all working towards mm. uh, and in my view that's the moment where clean energy is cheaper than dirty energy. There's a connection between everything we're talking about and getting that space. Mm. So, for example, what do we want musicians doing? Well, if we want them greening up their act, we want them doing that in such a way that it leads to others feeling pressure. Mm. For example, as we saw recently on the asylum seeker issue, uh, Transfield and the Biennale, mm. uh, the pressure that, that that caused there. Imagine what it would be like for musicians to campaign uh, festivals like the one we're at today to divest from fossil fuels, to not take any sponsors, not take any uh, money from sponsors who are caught up in the fossil fuel industry. These are things that musicians have, I would imagine, huge, huge influence on mm. and huge untapped influence. And that has a direct link to that ultimate goal. Well, that's certainly been brought home by the Biennale example. I mean, Tim, have you, you know, you're here at WOMAD and you are trying to set up Green Music Australia or you're setting it up. How does WOMAD rate? Woam Adelaide has been one of the leaders, yeah. actually, from for a, a very long time. I recall coming here with Foreplay in the late 90s, I think it was, and already Woam Adelaide was, was starting to take environmental leadership in terms of recycling, in terms of um, biodegradable plates and cutlery and all of that kind of thing, which is still here. Um, not to put any criticism on Woam Adelaide, but it doesn't seem to have moved on very much in that period of time. Um, so what would you like to see it leader. doing? Um, look, there's so many things that you can do in terms of LED stage lighting these, uh, these days, which is much more energy efficient than these big old hot cans, for instance. Um, I'm uh, reducing the amount of merchandise, reducing the amount of stuff that you take around. The little pop-up seats and things are all well and good, but do we really need them? I think these are the things that we need to start questioning if we're going to actually create a truly sustainable outcome. But flights in and out. Flights in and out is is the who most difficult thing to deal with in the music industry in a country like Australia. So who, um, no one on the stage is from Adelaide. Who in the audience has come from elsewhere via plane to be here? Yeah, it's a... <laughs> It's a big issue, so offsetting, but I guess, is still our best option. Well, it's one option, depending, of course, that it depends how you offset. Mm. And how's this for an offset? I mean, what if we got together at Worm Adelaide or at a festival like Woodford and, uh, and actually put our funds together and built a community wind farm? Yeah, mm. You will have seen, uh, there was a speaker yesterday, Simon Holmes, of court, talking about Embark and, and the Hepburn Wind uh, Farm and the work that they do there. But this is, I think, quite possible. In the following, in the next few years, there are financial institutions right now who are doing very detailed work 
to try and bring models like this to market so that a group like us can say the best way for us to offset uh, our carbon footprint here is to be part of building something that will green up this for the next 10, 20 years. You know, what if we got a discount uh, on our tickets in three or four years' time when the energy usage became cheaper because we paid a bit more now to build a community wind farm on site here? Mm. I think ideas like that could be really, really powerful and hopefully will be taken up by people who run this. Fantastic. Um, Tim, in the work that you've been doing uh, towards the Green Music Australia, you you were looking at this concept of value mapping, which I know you're familiar with. I'm not familiar with this. Can, can you talk us through value mapping and where it fits in with engaging people in, in climate action? Yeah, I guess so. As a, as a bit of a background to that, um, the reason I'm really digging around in this area and, and got out of politics to work with the music industry is because I'm more and more convinced that politics is kind of a, a symptom, in a sense, of the culture that underlies it, having been working in that area for six years, politics tends to implement what the culture drives it towards. And we have a culture in the West at the moment which is massively focused on materialism, on consumerism, on now, that my money now is more important than what might happen a little bit later. And so that's where I started really digging around in this research which is being done at the moment into the values that underpin our actions as individuals but more importantly as a society, as a group of individuals. And there's this fascinating project on values mapping that's being done by uh, various psychologists around the world where they've looked at the way various values interact with each other. So there's sets of values which are intrinsic, um, as they call it, which are focused on the values like compassion and sustainability and universality. Um, and then, uh, so they're valuable for their own sake, in a sense, as they connect with other people. And then there are the extrinsic values, values such as status and wealth, um, which are very much focused on how you present to the rest of the world. And the amazing conclusion of, of this psychological research is that the more you push the extrinsic values, they actively suppress intrinsic values and vice versa. So what I we is have... Is that across a culture or an individual It's cross-cultural. Well? This is the fascinating right. thing. So, sorry, yes. Individually, societally, but... What they found is that it, it's not a question of, of European culture or Asian culture or African culture or Australian culture. It's cross-cultural. These values seem to associate in the brain in the same kind of map. So what I find fascinating about that is if you think about, for instance, in our society we're bombarded day in, day out with that we are consumers, we are called consumers. We're not called citizens anymore, we're called consumers. You get onto a train and, and you're addressed over the, the tannoy as, as customers, not travellers. You know, we've got, we've got market reports in every single news report. So much of our culture is about being bombarded with this idea of materialism and consumerism and that that is what defines us. How hard is it then for us to ask people to focus on something which is completely the inverse of that, to focus on what our consumption does to other people. It's an extraordinarily difficult mm. thing to ask them to do. So somehow what we have to do is build up 
other intrinsic values to build up through, um, through all sorts of processes, political, societal, and cultural processes, ideas of compassion, of sustainability. Um, and one of the most fascinating areas of this, which I just love, is that something in creativity itself actually encourages the intrinsic values. Mm. That process of creation, which is not only the musicians on the stage or the artists in their studio, but is actually something that the audience goes through as well while listening to a piece of music, actively encourages intrinsic values. So there's so much, you know, this comes to what you were saying, Anna, before about the role of musicians and music in opening up parts of the brain. We know that instinctively, but it seems now from psychological research that it actually does that somehow. Is, is that the... Sorry, no. Is that the kind of thing, Simon? Did, did you have that in front of mind? So considering how much work you've put into organising and mobilising young people, do you have that kind of philosophy in front of mind when you're running things or helping run things like AYCC? Yeah, absolutely. So what's front of mind for me uh, that links to this is how we communicate, what words we use, and even more importantly, what frames that we try to remind people of. Mm -hmm. So uh, an example to make this real for you is to ask the question, why is it that politicians always like to be uh, in the frame with babies, right? You always see them wanting to kiss babies. Well, actually, there's evidence uh, from neuroscience and psychology and behavioural economics, all of these studies which have been coming together, particularly in the US and Europe, uh, where there's some amazing work being done, that shows that there are pathways, neurological pathways that get connected through imagery and through sound. Mm. Uh, it can open up our heart by connecting various things in our mind. And so when we see a baby, we're reminded of the warmth that we felt when we were being cuddled as a young one. Uh, and this is absolutely proven research that shows that that's what a politician is trying to do, to trick you uh, almost into that. Now, I don't think trickery is the right, the right word for what we should be doing, but we can use uh, political frames to make sure that we are communicating with people in powerful ways. So, for example, the most important touchstone of a progressive value set, the value set that brings us together, is empathy. Empathy is mm. at the absolute heart of what we are trying to communicate. And so what we could do is, when our side's in power, we should be updating the curriculum, for example, to make sure that these points are referred to, that, that young people are being given transformative experiences that help build their understanding of empathy, that help, help make sure they work from the heart and not just the mind. These are the things that lead to long-term change. Mm. And tell us some of, the, some of the lessons you've learned from the Youth Climate Coalition in, in mobilising young people and, and in getting people engaged and really making the most um, for anyone else who's here who's trying to really engage young people. Uh, well, I think the story of how the AYCC came together is actually a pretty incredible one. Uh, I was only one of you know, a great number of people to be a part of that organisation in its early stage and now it's been taken in a whole different and extraordinary direction. But it began as a network of youth organisations, which meant that it touched those people who were the low-hanging fruit, if you like, those mm. people who were already thinking about this issue or who had some connection to it. Uh, it then built out uh, and got these people together uh, and their network to 
bring their peer-to-peer network together at a conference called PowerShift some years later. Uh, that meant that you had thousands of young people in the room all excited and going through a transformative experience together, hearing from powerful people, meeting each other, understanding that there might only be two people at their school but there's thousands here in the room. Mm. They then went out of that conference into their own schools and organised a massive referendum on what Australia's carbon emissions reduction target should be, if you remember that debate in 2007-2008. And so all of a sudden you had thousands of people around the country voting and as they vote they could give over their over their email address uh, and start to become part of the movement. So Mm. suddenly you went from a small network to a couple of thousand people to 60,000 people and then that organic growth that comes from that. Just really interesting to see how you could grow through a good strategy, a mass movement. And what sorts of uh, wins is AYCC having now? Well, I think one of the lessons from uh, this organisation, this social movement, is that We've really got two choices right now, uh, I think, in the face of the Abbott government. One is to rage against the machine, and the other one is to subvert the machine. And I'm really. They might be embracing the machine as well. That's definitely not an option. (laughs) No. (laughs) There'll be no embracing of the Abbott government. Uh, Certainly not on this stage, I hope. Uh, And so, when we think about this, Yes, there are a lot of people who are going out there and rallying against what's happening right now, and I'm all for that because it deepens our movement, it brings new people into it. But short-term change is actually going to come about by uh, subverting the Abbott government, and this is by using our power, for example, our consumer power, to go and lobby companies directly. They had an amazing win. A whole bunch of organisations had an amazing victory recently when Lendlease, a big company, construction and other company, pulled out of participating in the Abbott Point port. Uh, This was part of the Great Barrier Reef coastline, the dredging that I'm sure you've all heard about that's occurring up there. Now, this is a really big win, and we can have more wins like this by mobilising our other forms of power, because we don't just have political power. And that's why the thing that excites me more than anything else right now is the divestment movement. Thousands of people across the country who are finding a way to move themselves and their money out of fossil fuels. So right now, uh, we've launched a new organisation called Fossil Free, which is kind of like a one-stop shop to help people switch their banking products, switch their their superannuation products, so that their money is not being used to fund the rapid growth of the fossil fuel sector along the Great Barrier Reef coastline and across the world. Because this is our carbon footprint. Our biggest carbon footprint is not the lights we use or the the way we travel here, but is in fact what our money is being done in our names but without our knowledge. And these are the kinds of things that I think young people are actually really understanding. They're wanting to use their superannuation to help invest in the clean energy of tomorrow because they understand that there's, there's this massive concept of a carbon bubble coming down the line, that actually the assets we're investing in now might massively lose their value as a result of the one million houses in Australia that have solar on them, as a result of the reduction we're likely to see in in coal demand from China that will impact on our pension funds and the way they're working. So there are ways I think we can subvert the Abbott government by going direct to their side of things, direct to the board tables. This is how, when you think back about why John Howard got on board with an emissions trading scheme, something we often forget, it was because, not just because of the social pressure and, and the inconvenient truth and the bushfires that were happening, it was because CEOs were going and seeing him and saying, this is a really big deal. We actually need to do something about this. So th- this is the opportunity that we face now and that young people are grasping. One of the really interesting things about divestment as well is taking as it does its inspiration from the massive divestment campaigns around the apartheid, anti-apartheid movement is the... M- one of the key goals of divestment is not just taking your money 
away so that there's less money to spend on fossil fuel investment. It's actually uh, that it's about changing the cultural norms. It's about saying, no, I don't want my superannuation, my investment involved in your dirty, polluting pro project. So it's actually a really powerful mm. cultural message. And I have to say, um, 12 years ago, I um, developed a website called Planet Slayer for the ABC where you had, um, uh, it was a greenhouse calculator that uh, you answered 10 questions and it told you what age you should have died at so you don't use more than your fair share of the planet. Wow, that's pretty confronting <laughs> there. <laughs> yeah, you can keep going on about how many planet Earths we need, but, uh, <laughs> you know, you've got to have the, uh, the stick and the carrot. Um, and one thing that really always frustrated me was that, you know, uh, super and mortgages were the two things that were never addressed. And 12 years on, it's with huge relief that I see that we're getting some movement on that and that it is becoming a simple thing because the number of phone calls I made as a journalist and, and you know, as someone interested for myself. So it's, it's terrific that we're starting to get to a point where it's nice and simple. Yeah, and pretty exciting. I mean, Bernie uh, herself uh, has uh, divested her bank uh, and gone with a fossil fuel free bank, uh, yeah, a conversation we were having earlier. Mm -hmm. I think she deserves a round of applause for that, by uh, the way. It's not even my birthday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the challenge, of course, is right now you can't do that with superannuation mm -hmm. because there's no retail superannuation offering in this country, something that very few of us realise, that doesn't have some exposure to the fossil fuel sector. Is, are young people really that clued up on super? Because I know, I mean, it's generations ago now, but I certainly didn't have a clue or a care at the time. Well, while they might not be, there's a massive opportunity to get them to be. Mm. Uh, I think that, uh, that young people really understand when they look around them that the world is changing and that if their so-called ethical or responsible, I should say, investment product uh, has its fifth largest investment in ExxonMobil, well, that's not a very uh, green, so-called green product. And so I think young people understand that, they see it. Because superannuation doesn't mean a lot to them, at this stage they're willing to use it for an activist cause, but also they're willing to take the long-term view and say, you know what, we, we can decide right now. It's pretty clear what future we're going to have. It is going to be a clean energy-powered future. There's no doubt about that. It's just about how we get there. And if you agree with that principle, then you should divest your superannuation from fossil fuels. The conversations I've had with young people have been fantastic. Mm. They are the first generation ready to jump on and believe in a clean energy future and to walk the talk with their own money. Fantastic. I was just going to say one other thing about the Australian Youth Climate Coalition, one of the big victories they had, in my opinion, um, goes back to this question about about language and about the discourse that you can't actually, we can't do anything about climate change unless we're actually having an open conversation about it and if you can't raise it at a dinner party. And during the 2010 election campaign, AYCC quite rightly identified that neither of the major parties wanted to talk about climate change. So they invented the climate elephant that was the elephant in the room, which tagged around the leaders in the campaign and a whole lot of other events and just kept popping its head up and and making the point that climate change was the elephant in the room not being discussed. And it started to be discussed. Mm. And climate change became an issue in that election campaign despite the efforts of both the major parties. Uh, we're having elections in Sweden this year and there's not anyone talking about climate and we've still got the elephant costume. Yeah, it's we, terrible. I should bring the elephant yeah, back I've to Sweden, Yeah, I've actually got one in my lounge room. I'm happy to... Uh, <laughs> I should. My wife insists that we keep it there. Sure I can take it on the plane back. <laughs> yeah. Excess baggage, on no problem. On the plane back, you know, <laughs> flying everywhere. 
Now, Anna, I wanted to get back to you because we've been talking about some things that really give hope. I mean, it's, you know, it's really inspiring to hear progress like um, divestment and, and how easily engaged young people are. But there are definitely times where it's really difficult to feel that hope. And, and you know, you were saying hope initially um, motivated you to, to, um, to get going with no more lullabies. But um, then, you know, when you fell in a heap afterwards and, and you know, what, have you got any advice for how we cope? Or what are your thoughts on this, on this question of how we give people hope? Because we can't just strand young people there with this hideous future. Well, I, I feel if I were 15 today and, and being presented, at least where I come from, presented with the news of everything going the wrong way, I would probably be paralyzed. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think it's very important to bring out the news of things that are actually working out because there are things working out. There are lakes being cleaned up, the, the fishes are coming back, and uh, there is um, people changing their fossil fuels energy into something else everywhere, you know. And the possibilities also of the alternatives like sun, um, solar energy in the desert, you know, there's so much positive stories to tell. Uh, but if you don't get to hear them, you think everything's just doomed. Mm. And I think that's one of the most important things. Of course, I don't believe in just being positive. I think it's extremely important to, to be quite harsh and say, this is for real. You know, it's, this is not a joke. This is for real. We have to do something. But it's also very, very, very important to be constructive and say, there are things we can do, and we should do it now. And when you talk, when you actually ask the, the, uh, the people of Scandinavia if they want the politicians to do something about climate change. They do want them to do that. But the politicians don't dare to because the corporations are on them about, yeah, oil. I'm coming, I come from Norway, you know, our biggest income is oil and gas. And I don't understand when we're gonna let that go because that's our only income. And it's really hard to talk climate in Norway because it's a country, just like New Zealand, it's a country uh, it's very similar to New Zealand, actually. It's, it's a country of uh, like mountains and fjords and nature. It's just it's like an uh, it's just a surplus of nature, and people can't relate to that disappearing because it's there so close to us all the time, and we're so far away from actually feeling the climate change. Except we get a bit warmer summers, and people are just like mm, maybe you know it's nicer. You know, it's it's really hard up there to mm. make people really understand how difficult it is, but. I don't know, I kind of went on a different path here, but I think it's important, as I said earlier, the communication, and also I think that for young people, teenagers, as you were talking about earlier, to teach them how to be more human, to have talk about emotions, talk about relationships, talk about grief and joy and dealing with a crisis. And in school, you don't learn that, but mm. this is a big crisis. This is actually, a, I think, for the human race, this is a psychological challenge for us because we're not made to deal with this kind of challenge. We are, but the positive thing is that humans are amazing in, in actually uh, solving problems. And for instance, one example I think is really good is how we did with the smoking ban laws. It happened in, I don't know, three years, mm -hmm. five years, all over the world. And it's just nobody smoking anywhere anymore. And first it was like, no, 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 no. And I was like, oh, this is nice. 
<laughs> and it's just like, it was so quick. And I think we can do that with so many other things that are bad for us, you know? Well, this we is what we're seeing in China happening right now. Uh, massive shifts where just the other day Beijing was completely covered uh, in pollution. It's having incredibly powerful pollution effects. And yet at the same time, it's driving political change because you're seeing mm. enormous investments in renewable energy. Uh, emissions trading scheme up by next year, 2015. I mean, extraordinary things happening in China simply because it's reached that tipping point. And this is where in Australia, of course, our challenge is to work out when will we understand we've reached a tipping point? Will we do something? Paul Gilding talks a lot about this. Will we do something before that tipping point? Or will we get to it and then try and build resilience and adaptation in that moment? Now, a lot of people say we'll have to wait until our pollution levels are as bad as they are in China. But I think a lot of young people are saying today, no way. Mm. No way are we just going to sit back and, and let this thing just go on without us it's and make change later on. Yeah, it's the not just an older generation getting cancer, getting lung cancer. It's something very different. The challenge is to allow ourselves to have that conversation as well. Because I, w I think in, in a slightly different Australia, which wasn't quite so dominated by News Limited, for instance, we might be allowed to have that conversation about the bushfires and the drought, which is happening now. People are dying in Australia because of climate change right now and have been for years. But we're not allowed to talk about it. We're not allowed to call that climate change. Well, we're just going to, aren't we, right? I mean, we, have we saw what Adam Bant did. And it was the key moment. Now, climate scientists, when you talk to them, often say, no, 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 I'm not going to be the one to go out there and make the connection. I tried that a few years ago, and the Australian absolutely came mm. after me, and the death threats came, so I'm not going to try that again. But when we saw Adam Bant go out there and link the bushfires directly to climate change, we, it, it opened the way for other scientists to come out there and, and back him up, because suddenly they were asked for their opinion rather than stepping out for it. Mm. You had media outlets ringing climate scientists and saying, is this politician mad or is he onto something? And of course they have to give the honest answer, which is that they're onto something. Mm. And this is a way in which I think, the I think the opportunity here is to just ignore the fact that society tells us not to link them and just yeah. do it. And we're going to have to back each other up and we're all going to need your support because we're going to get slammed by doing this. So we just have to keep pushing through that. <laughs> see a bit of support in the room here. I it think you can feel quietly, <laughs> quietly confident there. We're about to get to your questions. Um, before we do that, we were talking about hope. Now, we're, uh, we're living in a time where um, the politics aren't necessarily going in the direction a lot of us who are concerned about climate change would have them go. Um, what, what are your thoughts on how we give people hope, how we maintain hope in this environment, especially young people? Well, for me, it's about breaking down what is a really big issue, into some targets and some steps. I raised earlier that I think our target should be to get to the point where clean energy is cheaper than dirty energy, uh, both by you know delaying fossil fuel projects and protesting them and direct action, but also by making sure we all invest our own money mm -hmm. in renewable energy. And so when you start breaking that down further and further and further, you end up at divestment and a whole range of other places. And I think these things give people hope. At the end of the day, what we mustn't do is ever communicate about climate change without talking to people about concrete steps uh, that make up a theory of change. That is to say that there is a pathway between where we are now, your action and this future. We have to draw that line in order to hold this movement together and make sure that, we, that people feel the hope and optimism that I certainly feel mm. because there's so much going on out there and there really are connections to it. This is, I think, our challenge. 
One other thing I'd suggest, which gives me hope every day, I mentioned yesterday, um, reading Renew Economy each day just uh, shows what the market's achieving where politics is maybe not going in, in that direction. Now, over to you to um, get your questions to our panel. We've got some microphones ready to go. Tim, you spent some time working for Greenpeace. You've also spent time working for Pristine Vent. Where do you think in your life experience you've been able to make the most effective change? Wherever is best for you at that point in your life is the only answer to that. Um, I believe that I, you know, I, and hope that I contributed to change in both of those organisations. Um, where I feel I can best contribute to change right now is trying to get the music industry working. I think the critical, the critical thing is to engage, to engage actively in it. Um, whether, whether the limit of what you can do at this stage is to divest yourself and to have conversations with people about that, whether it's by joining some activist group, whether it's by getting involved in a political campaign. The critical thing is to do what you can and to talk to as many people about what you're doing and why you're doing it as possible. That's the and thing. the microphones, we've got a question down here, over there. Uh, one here, thanks. Hi, um, my, my biggest problem is, I think Gen Z are awesome, but uh, it's one of disconnect. Just more into the microphone. So, so the problem is we've we've got a, a whole group of people, not not just our generations, who are disconnected from political process, but from food production, from their electricity production, and we need to reconnect them. How do we do that? Well, there are some awesome movements who are doing this. You know, there's, there are there are movements of people who are growing their food locally. Uh, you know, we're seeing the massive rebirth of markets, uh, chooks, farmers backyard markets. Chooks. You know, all this stuff is actually really important because it goes back to Tim's earlier point, uh, which is that we need to actually have these experiences as part of our lives in order to understand the system we're living in. A great example that comes to mind for me is a conversation I once had with the former Liberal uh, MP, Judy Moylan. Now, you remember she's the MP who crossed the floor uh, on a range of asylum seeker issues over the years. And when you ask her about, you know, why... Uh, she had this understanding, this empathy. It was because when she was growing up, she had refugees around her in her regional community, in her school, in her home. And they're the types of experiences that we can bring to the environment movement as well. But I think a lot of that is going to be up to active parenting. You know, actually, uh, I mean, I could say this, I'm not a parent. but yeah, I'm <laughs> right behind you, I'm e not easier either. <laughs> easier for us to say it than I'm sure. But, you know, there is a real role, I'm sure, for bringing nature... Uh, and local produce into our own children's lives and into our schools and into our curricula. Thank you. And we'll just keep going with the questions. Yes? Bernie, will you tell us the name of the Green Bank? A and... Uh, Simon will. Simon will. <laughs> okay. Well, there are a number of fossil fuel-free banks and the best way to find them is to go to fossilfree.com.au. <laughs> you can see them all there. Uh, and the reason I say that is that it's actually very complex. There are some banks which are fossil fuel-free, uh, but they don't champion it. There are some banks which uh, are willing to actually go out there and build the social licence by saying, we're fossil fuel-free and we're not scared to say it. And I think we should be supporting the ones who are prepared to shout it from the rooftops rather than hide it. Thank <laughs> me to you. Uh, That's hers. <laughs> um, thanks very much. And uh, yes, thank you. Oh, hi. This is a question for everybody on the panel. Um, Anna said um, that Norway's in a tricky situation because of huge reliance on, on oil. Um, I guess two things come out of that. One is what would be the most sensible sustainable energy alternatives for 
your country? And um, secondly, ha where else would revenue potentially come mm. from if it didn't come from that source? Well, I feel that Norway, if I should decide, <laughs> I feel that Norway should be on the forefront of creating new possibilities and new alternatives and actually spend all that money that we make on fossil fuels right now to try to make new alternatives. And I think that wind is probably one of the best ones in, in Norway. Uh, and water, we've used water for forever, you know, water, what you call, I don't know what you say. Hydropower. Yeah. And uh, sun is not an option. <laughs> so uh, um, I think that would be the, I, I feel that Norway should kind of like, because of the position they have as a fossil fuel producer, they should be on the forefront of changing because they have such a good ac economy. They should be there just putting money into it. And actually, as I think you said, like to stand on the rooftops and scream that they are doing it because they're not doing it, saying that. So what if they are, they're not telling me. What about Nokia? I mean, Norway had enormous... That's Finnish. That's Finnish? Yeah, they're all the same, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Clearly we'll edit like that out. Like New Zealand <laughs> and Australia. <laughs> Someone mentioned a place called Tasmania. Never heard of it. <laughs> okay, take that back. Oh all right. right. But yeah. we, are, we are seeing... Fish and oil. Yep. Yeah, we are seeing opportunities in Scandinavia uh, and people are building sovereign wealth funds that mean that they can actually invest in the opportunities of the future. In fact, I would argue that the countries who are contributing the most to the climate crisis, of course, have the most to lose and therefore actually need to diversify. There's a lot of research in exactly. this space that's driving change. Yep. I think there's a really important point in this question still to address in terms of what are, what are the alternative income streams for a country. One of the things that I think we need to get past if we're going to have a chance of tackling climate change is this idea that we have to have so much global trade all the time. Mm. We can actually move to a slightly more localised economy and society while maintaining our quality of life and maintaining a proper global society. We've decided that in this global world we just have to trade all the time. We sell a huge amount of coal from Australia to China so that we can buy a whole lot of plastic crap that we don't need. That's the fundamental problem. Until we deal with that, we can't solve this problem. Mm. So we need to rethink that whole thing. That's why I'm taking this to a cultural level and a psychological level. We need to actually rethink how we do this. I noticed that you said maintaining our quality of life rather than our standard Not of living, our wealth, which is our yeah, exactly. Of life. I think it's a, a fantastic point to make, and I think you I don't think you're speaking news to anyone here about the, the things we value are way more important than the, uh, the things we accrue. Um, we have another question here. Uh, thank you very much. Climate change is a universal problem that we're all having to deal with. And you talked at length about empathy and trying to teach empathy to Generation Z and Generation Y. Now, each of you have formed adversarial organisations that have pushed divisive issues that conflate different fights with climate change. So all of you anticipate that if you support the fight against climate change, then you need to be anti-nuclear. You need to be anti-global trade. You need to be anti-pollution. You need to be anti-deforestation and all of these things that come with it, a, a bouquet of beliefs. Now, all of these prevent engagement and prevent empathy with others who may not share those particular beliefs when climate change is common to us all. Thank you. Why have Response? you made this a political problem 
Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Uh, and there are a multitude of answers to it. But the first is that is to understand in activism the concept of revolutionary reforms. And this concept talks about the fact that to solve an issue over here, we might have to work on something that opens up the space over here. So the, a really good example is why do climate activists, uh, for example, those that work at GetUp, uh, campaign so much against uh, political donations? And that's because it's a revolutionary reform. If, if the fossil fuel sector was donating less to political parties, maybe there'd be a greater willingness to actually go out there uh, and take more action on climate change. And so there, there are direct linkages between these issues. Now, that's not to say that I completely disagree with your point, because it might sound like that. I actually don't. I think there are a plethora of organisations who make up the broad progressive movement, but even that is a bridge that we don't need to draw, or a box we don't need to draw. There are lots of organisations now, like the Investor Group on Climate Change, for example, who are bringing together people who really don't care about the other issues which you raised and focus solely on this. And that feels like where we're going as a climate movement right now, in reaching new audiences. Uh, in, I mean, there was, there's research that shows that the majority of Liberal voters still believe in action on climate change. And so there are going to be ways to break down these political barriers. I think we've now learnt the lesson from the last five or six years and we'll be more careful in the next five or six to be more strategic about these linkages. I would really challenge the idea that building empathy is somehow... Uh, somehow has to involve not being... Uh, the word is not divisive, but... In terms of building, building empathy and building cooperation and building values that support change we have to stand up to the values that are holding that back. It's absolutely critical in building a more sustainable world that we stand up to those who are trying to tear it down. So I think, I think the two can go in ha hand in hand very much. Thank you. Yes? One uh, moment, thanks. Tim and, and, well, actually, the whole panel, um, you've, particularly in the last answer, answer before this, you alluded to cultural change and quality of life issues which I took to be a euphemism for challenging the concept of continual growth and whether or not we need a stable state economy. No one's mentioned that over the last couple of days at all. It's been the absolute elephant in the room, no discussion. Do you think it's because we're not ready to have that conversation yet or because it's just not relevant? I think it's part of the same process of shutting down conversations that are inconvenient to those who are in power, um, whereby you know, you're told not to talk about how climate change might be increasing bushfires and you're shouted down for saying it, and I think we just need to stand up and say it, as Simon said. Um, I Simon think said, get Simon it? Said. Oh, yeah. yeah, I heard that one before. <laughs> so there's... Um, I think there's a whole lot of really interesting thinking going on at the moment um, about the language that we use and how we talk about the economy. Um, the idea of growth can be thought of in different ways. And the idea of what we value can be thought of in different ways. If we think about um, building and increasing in our society the levels of happiness and the levels of cooperation um, and the levels of interconnectedness and connection to nature, we can grow that as much as we like without having any negative impact on anybody around us. That's the kind of thing we should be thinking about growing. Thanks, Tim. Um, final question. Uh, Nothing concentrates the mind more than the arrival of grandchildren. <laughs> They're not Generation Z, maybe they'll be A and B. Teenagers are digital natives. We haven't heard anything really about what's special about digital natives. 
but in education, people are thinking carefully about how they need to change things to communicate with digital natives. So thinking of Generation Z, thinking of Generation A and B who are digital super natives, how should we react? What can we do differently? How can we go beyond just all our email networks and really communicate with true digital natives? Well, first of all, it has to happen within that audience. So we can't necessarily be the ones tapping into those networks. But uh, to be digital native is an opportunity because it means that they are, we're talking about the most connected generation potentially in the history of the world. The peer-to-peer -peer networks that can be unleashed uh, using the, the, the power of rapid and mass communication is extraordinary. So I look at this with great optimism. The one downside, of course, is the disconnect from nature. But there are plenty of upsides that come from this new generation who are coming through. Because now, anybody can be a leader. Anybody can step out uh, and test the water and see who will follow. The norms of social hierarchy are being broken down every day through this, this digital native generation. So I reckon that's really exciting and a great opportunity. But it's going to come by observing what happens within that group, uh, not from us trying to trying to work within them. In fact, if anything, it may be the other way around. A campaign that was also run uh, uh, at that same election that Tim referred to earlier by the AYCC was uh, Nag Your Nan, Nag Your Nan Day, where, uh, where people went online and, and, and learnt about this and then went offline and went and saw their grandparents and had a conversation about climate change and about the link between that issue and their vote. Mm. This is something that could be really powerful. I think we'll see the other way work, not uh, grandparents talking to young people. Uh, and one last thing, I think, um, you know, being digital native is not, that's not mutually exclusive from being uh, in touch with nature. And, uh, you know, one opportunity in the digital realm is to drive people to nature using, using those tools. Now, we're, we're out of time, I'm sorry, but I do want each of you to, um, to just give us uh, your message to, um, to Gen Z, something that, that they can take away from these discussions here today. Well, uh, I, uh, I think there's great optimism. We're with you, Gen Z. We're relying on you, uh, despite <laughs> what I said earlier. <laughs> Please step up and do it. No but, no, but honestly, I think the main message here uh, is actually that we're in this together, that we've got to build resilience and that we're going to be standing with you. Uh, as Tim mentioned earlier, people are already dying in our very own country as a result of this issue. And so we are going to stand with you as we adapt to this extraordinary and this difficult issue. Don't let us hold you back. Mm. Um, I think it's the same as I said earlier. Communicate about all these things and don't just don't believe that it's not possible. Try to try to make change. Thanks, Anna, and thank you, Anna Bruin, <laughs> Tim Hollow, and Simon Shake. And that's it from us at Planet Talks, WOM Adelaide 2014. It's been a great thrill and I hope you've enjoyed it. We'll see you all again. Cheers. Bye.